scarlet coats and crash of the band, the gray of a pauper's gown, a soldier's grave in Zululand, and a woman in Breckentown. My little lad for a soldier boy, mothers of Breckentown. My eyes for tears and his for joy when he went from Breckentown. His for the flags and the gallant sights, his for the medals and his for the fights, and mine for the dreary, rainy nights at home in Breckentown. They say he's laid beneath a tree, come back to Breckentown. Shouldn't I know I was there to see? It's far to Breckentown. It's me that keeps it trim and dressed, with a briar there and a rose by his breast. The English flowers he likes the best that I bring from Breckentown. And I sit beside him, him and me, we're back to Breckentown, to talk of the things that used to be, gray ghosts of Breckentown. I know the look of the land and sky, and the bird that builds in the tree nearby, in times I hear the jackals cry, and me in Breckentown, golden gray on miles of sand, the dawn comes creeping down, it's day in far off Zululand, and night in Breckentown. That's the poem Ascendalwana by John McRae. Let's talk about the Zulu Wars. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The people who don't these buildings down are here all of us. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. And in the streets, we shall never surrender. I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. Delighted to be joined today by Professor Ian F. W. Beckett, who is Professor Emeritus of Military History at the University of Kent. He is the author of numerous books, most recently, Works Drift and Ascendalwana. And it occurred to me, I should probably have double-checked my pronunciation of these things before we began the, the production. Growing up in the United States, there's not the same, I think, cultural exposure um, <laughs> okay. to the Zulu Wars as in the UK. So forgive me in advance if I, no, if I mangle fine. any of the African names. Isandwana is fine. Okay. I was I was in the neighborhood. I was yeah. in the neighborhood. <laughs> if, you, if you would, let's, let's give a bit of context. We're going to obviously spend the episode talking about the events of 1879 and these these two battles, linked battles in particular. But what what are the British doing in the 19th century, second half of the 19th century in South Africa? What is their interest in what I suppose is known as, as Zulu land at the time? Okay, right. Well, essentially, it's a, it's a matter of the, the, the route to India. And Britain had seized the Cape of Good Hope from the Dutch in 1806, primarily because it's on on the route to India. So it's a matter of sort of imperial security. And then it was a Dutch colony. So there there was an Afrikaner population that pretty much trekked away, as they say, from British rule in the sort of 1820s established these two independent republics, the Orange Free State and Transvaal, which is Transvaal is sometimes called the South African Republic, north of the, the Orange River and the Vaal. And because of the concerns for India, there because the the Afrikaner communities were going beginning to go into Natal, which is on the kind of the, the, the southeast coast of, of southern Africa, Britain annexed that in 1843. And then there was this idea that because you've got this fragmented collection of white colonies, Africana colonies and the two British ones, that that was, that was a danger, really. Particularly, it might lead also to the intervention of other European powers. And 
Britain took the that had a plan for what was called confederation. So it wanted to unite all four of the white colonies in South Africa under British control. And at the same time, it also perceived that there was a threat to security generally from independent African kingdoms, such as the Zulu. Britain took the opportunity to annex Transvaal in 1877. What happened was that the Transvaal fought a war against a, another African people, the Papidi, which they effectively lost. And the Transvaal bankrupted itself. So Britain took the opportunity to annex it in 1877. Now, by annexing the Transvaal, Britain inherited an existing border dispute between the Boers and the Zulu. And the man who was the High Commissioner in South Africa, a man called Henry Bartle Frere, again saw this as an opportunity in a sense to kill two birds with one stone by neutralizing the Zulu threat as well. So he organized a border commission uh, in 1878 to uh, adjudicate between the, the Boer and the Zulu claims to the territory on the western part of, of Zululand, eastern part of the Transvaal. Much to his horror, <laughs> the Border Commission found in favour of the Zulus. So they then manufactured a crisis. There have been a number of border incidents, and Frere manipulated a, a, a kind of a, these incidents to present an ultimatum to the Zulu. And the whole idea was to neutralise the Zulu kingdom, which was a powerful African kingdom. And at the same time, if you neutralise the Zulu, you would also that sort of persuade the, the Afrikaners in the Transvaal that it was in their best interest to come under British protection, because already there were there were you know, misgivings in the Transvaal. But it ended up in, in 1881, there was a, a rising against the British, which we call the First Boer War, or, or the, the Transvaal War, Anglo-Transvaal War. So it's all connected in a sense to, to the idea of British security of the route to, to India. Um, and I suppose in the sort of style of the times, the ultimatum that was issued was was full of terms that were basically unacceptable to the Zulu. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. In effect, I mean, in effect, the, the main sticking point, I mean, there were cattle fines and things like that. But the sticking point was the demand that the entire Zulu military system be dismantled. Right. And the whole of Zulu polity is, un, is you know, depends on, on this military system that had been evolved since really about 1828. The Zulu is not a kind of, it's a sort of a nation in arms, you could argue, in a European sense. But by striking at the, the, the whole basis of that and demanding that that be dismantled, then it would totally undermine the Zulu polity. So there was no way in which the Zulu were going to accept that ultimatum. Let's talk about the, the Zulu system, if we could, for, for a few yeah, minutes. Sure. What, is, what is their military system? What is distinctive about the, the Zulu nation compared to other prominent African nations of the day? Well, it, it, it's not unlike other Bantu peoples. And it's, it's a kind of a series of age regiments. So when a, a boy is born, he, he grows up within a, a kind of a regiment, what they call Amabutho. And it, they're based on a, a cohorts of age. And they, in a sense, owe their loyalty to the king until they are about 40, 40 years old. They cannot even marry, for example, until the king decrees that that particular regiment can marry. And for much of the year, these regiments, it's, 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 a, nation, it's, it's a sort of a nation in ours, which is not actually a standing army per se, because for most of the year, these regiments are at homesteads uh, throughout uh, Zululand. They're cultivating crops. They're looking after the king's cattle. 
and all the cattle belong to the king. Mm. And they are only summoned, uh, you know, sort of once a year for kind of a, an annual ceremony, and then they disperse the homesteads again. So there, there is a, a certain misunderstanding on the British part of, of the nature of that system. It's not that uh, Frere describes you know, them that Keshweo, who is the Zulu king, as having 40,000 uh, man-slaying gladiators uh, available, celibate man-slaying gladiators available <laughs> to him. It's not quite that at all. So there's a basic misunderstanding of the system. Nonetheless, if you dissolve the regiments and order the regiments deep, then the whole of the, the kind of the economy of Zululand, which is based on this system, is dissolved and the king's authority goes with it. And I assume that that this regimental system, the sort of political order that you describe is probably all tied up with, you know, essentially religious beliefs on, on the part of the Zulu. It wasn't just a, a sort of bloodless way of maintaining self-defense, but this this went back a while or how, what are the roots uh, of this? It, it, it's, it's not really akin to religion. There, there, there is a sort of a, a system whereby in, in terms of, of making war, then the Zulu have a system whereby it prioritizes, for example, the use of handheld weapons. I mean, firearms are available in Zululand, although they're fairly, you know, they're often percussion muskets. They're not modern firearms. Only very few modern firearms have reached Zululand. And the, the whole Zulu kind of system, it depends on honor and you know, closing to hand very close getting to, into hand-to-hand combat with your opponent. So it's all the system in many ways is space is a kind of honor system. It's mm. not really religion as such. Okay. Okay. So so the ultimatum is issued it's uh, December of 78 and then yeah, yeah 11th of December 1878. And then so what is the what is the plan? What is the operating concept of of the Brits as they march off into Zulu territory? Well there there's an assumption of course that this is going to be just a walkover like, like many other colonial wars have been. And the British commander in chief was a Lieutenant General Lord Chelmsford. And the plan is to divide, is to invade Zululand with three out of five columns. The other two are columns in in reserve. And he decides that he would go with what's called the central number two column. And all these columns, in effect, are going to are going to converge on what is seen to be Keshweo's main. It's, it's not in the sense of capital in the European sense, but it's his main homestead which is what was then called Yolandi, and these days is called Ondini. So the idea is that all the three columns will converge, one from the north, one from the south, one, one from the west, that the, the Zulu will be drawn into an open battle, therefore British firepower will prevail. And that fits very much into the Zulu intention as well, because Keshweo understands that you know, if he can inflict a defeat on the British, then they might be prepared to negotiate. He's always actually prepared to negotiate from the very beginning. There is a, there's a, there is a sort of a peace party within the Zulu polity, though it's not a very prominent one. It includes some of Keshweo's own, own half-brothers. So Keshweo wants a battle, and so do the British. And as the British invade, the intention is also to destroy crops, to seize livestock and to burn the, the the homesteads, because the the timing of the invasion is is actually very very carefully worked out, because it's it's the just the start of it is it would be the time of year. This the invasion is scheduled for January, 
it'll be the time of year when the Zulu should be actually planting crops. So by invading at that time, they're, they're not able to do that. Right. At the same time, the rivers would be relatively high because of recent rains. So that would mean that it would be less easy for the Zulu to, in a sense, stage some kind of counter-invasion into Natal, which was a fear on the part of, of, of certainly the colonists in Natal. So it's very well-timed, and both sides, in a the, in the sense, want, want a battle in the open. And the British obviously thought that this was going to play to their strengths. But as it happens, this did not prove to be the case. I expect most listeners could probably picture, you know, what one of these British columns looked like mm. more or less in the second half of the 19th century, the yeah. sort of tra transitional technological moment between, you know, the, the, the era of the Civil War in Crimea on the one hand and the First mm. World War on the other. But I, how, did the, how did the Zulu actually fight? What was, what was their sort of uh, their tactical concept, if you will? Okay, well, it's, it's called the horns of the buffalo. And what you have is you have, it's, it's hard to describe without showing you a diagram. Really. Well, there's, of course, there's the great it's, scene in, in the movie. You see the, the horns of, on yep. the cattle, on the steer. On the, the, the sort of left and the right of that are the sort of the flanking groups. And then you have the, the sort of the bit where the, the whole, and the idea is that the left and the right wings will surge forward and encircle your opponent and draw them into what they call the loins which is the main part of the Zulu army. And then you've got another section, which is the reserve behind that. So it had been very effective, certainly against other African peoples in the past. And as it proved, it was relatively, <laughs> relatively successful against the British as well. But again, the whole idea is to encircle your opponent, draw them in, but to get to close quarters with them. The British, in theory, hoped to stand back and just use firepower to destroy the Zulus. I mean, Chelmsford, had fought against, there had been a, a war against the Kosa, uh, which had finished in 1878. And the Kosa, broadly familiar, ta similar tactics, but they had easily been dispersed by British firepower. So there was this overconfidence the same, that Zulu would fight pretty much in the same way. And if anything, though Chelmsford issues a pamphlet on how the Zulus are likely to fight, it's almost in the sense that he, he doesn't either believe what he's been told or what he's actually read, that therefore they're, they're just going to come on in a great mass and they'll be shot down. But the, the Zulu tactics were more a little bit more sophisticated than that. They said they do have firearms, though they don't tend to actually use them. And the one thing which you could say for the Zulu is that they because they are so anxious to press an attack, in the face of enormous firepower, is that the, the, the casualties that they suffer at Isandwana and some of the other battles are quite horrendous because you know, they, they keep pressing forward to try to engage in hand-to-hand -hand tactics. And for very particular circumstances at Isandwana, they, they were able to succeed in a way that, for example, where Rourke's Drift, there was a, a, an improvised defense with, with mealy bags and biscuit boxes and wagons, they weren't able to penetrate that defense, even though they were very a much larger force than the, def the defenders of, of Rourke's Drift. And the argument goes that if the British had undertaken more defensive preparations in Isandwana, then that might not have gone the way that it did. Am I crazy to draw a comparison between the basic Zulu formation that you just described 
and is vividly described in that wonderful scene in the movie Zulu by the, I suppose, the the the, the Boer officer who yeah. shows up yeah, yeah. and helps Michael Caine out in the pinch. That's right. Am I crazy to draw a, a comparison between that formation? And isn't this essentially what Hannibal is is famous for? Yeah, is it, yeah, is suppose, the cen- it's the center yeah. that draws you in and then you're, yes. you're in trouble on your flanks? Yes, I think funny. that's a very, a very fair analogy, yes. It's funny the sort of, you know, basic warfighting logic that underlies, I mean, it's unlike, I, I don't want to say, but it's, it seems yeah. to me unlikely that Jeshweo made a, made a study of Roman warfare, but... No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but in, you know, sort of intuited yeah. the logic of the thing. You know, I think that, that's a very fair analogy. So off, off we are on these columns, marching into Zulu territory, hoping for, uh, for, for quick work of it, the, the Brits. So how, how do things, let's, let's set the stage a bit for the, for the 22nd of, of January. What, how do things okay. go so horribly wrong? <laughs> well, as I said that the column down in the South, yeah, that goes fine. And the column up in the North, similarly, but Chelmsford, uh, as I said earlier, companies, the main column. And they set, they cross the border on the 11th of January and uh, Isandwana appears to be a very suitable site for a camp. In theory, when you look at, if you've been, you know, for those perhaps who've been to Isandwana, there's a mountain and then there's a broad plain in front of it. What that tends to disguise is, is, is the, 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 the many water courses, sort of dry water courses that, that run through it. So it's not a flat plain. There are lots of areas where anybody could be, you know, could, could be concealed or, or rather could not be fired upon directly. So Chelmsford establishes his camp at Isandwana on the 20th of January. And there were reports that Zulus had been seen to the southeast. Now, that's the direction of Yolandi, which is the, the main homestead, the direction in which they would be going. And Chelmsford expected, in a sense, to find Zulus to the southeast. So what he then, he sent out some colonial forces, colonial volunteers, and what's also called the Natal native contingent, who are African auxiliaries, who are mostly drawn from Africans who are hostile to the Zulu. And he sent out uh, on the 21st of January, a fairly, a fairly large force of African auxiliaries and colonial volunteers in that direction. And the man who commanded that was a, a, a man. Oh, <laughs> uh, that I should notice that they go out and they encounter groups of Zulu. So instead of returning to Zandrana, they camp out there for the night. And in the early hours of the twenty-second of January, having received this reports that Zulu had indeed been encountered, Chelmsford decides to divide his force still further. And he takes out just over half of the men who are left in the camp. And that leaves in the camp, in effect, five companies of the 1st Battalion of the 24th Foot, one company of the 2nd Battalion of the 24th Foot, plus elements of the Natal Native Contingent, and also some more mounted colonial volunteers. And marches off in the pre, just before dawn, pre-dawn darkness, to reinforce this other group on the Dartnell, that's the man, Dartnell. And so they march off, they, they go off about 3, 4 a.m. And he leaves in the camp, which he thinks is, is perfectly adequately guarded. These six companies of British infantry, plus these colonial volunteers, plus the Africans. And he also knew that in the course of the morning, 
what was called number three column, which is in reserve, is going to come into the camp, uh, commanded by a man called Anthony Durnford, who was a, a royal engineer. And Durnford's column, a smallish column, consists of more Natal native contingent and more colonial volunteers. And they arrived at about, about 10, 30, 11 a.m. And we're not... Because you know watches don't all <laughs> agree at this time. It's, it's so there is in the end there's about seventeen hundred men left in in the camp. Now from the early hours of the morning, further reports have come in from Vizettes, scouts out on the plain due east of Isandwana that again there were Zulus out there. And it's very clear that the, the main Zulu army, which is about 20,000 men, so considerably more than in either of the, the two halves of Chancellor's force, had been sent by Keshwayo to, 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 to deal with that column because it was the one he recognized and was accompanied by Chelmsford. And that was the one that if he defeated it would be, or, or blunted it would be most likely to lead to a negotiation. Now, the Zulus had very carefully concealed their approach. There, there is a lot of dispute over exactly where the Zulu army camped on the night of the 21st, 22nd of January. And there is some dispute over whether they actually intended to attack on the 22nd of January, because it's the day of the dead moon, an eclipse of the, the sun is due. And that's a sort of a bad omen. Having said that, there's a, an action that takes place in the south of Zululand on the same day. So, hmm. But generally speaking, what happens is a patrol from the camp comes across the main Zulu army, uh, supposedly all sitting down in the valley. And once, of course, they've been seen, the whole lot moves forward. So the man who's left in command of the camp is a man called Henry Pulleen. And Durnford technically is his senior officer. But Pauline has been told to defend the camp. Durnford decided in the light of these reports that he would take out his column onto the plain to see what was going on. And he sends up sends other patrols up onto the heights, which are to the sort of the, the north of Isandwana, northeast of Isandwana. And one of those patrols is the patrol that comes across the Zulu army just sitting down. So then the whole thing breaks out. Pauline sent the, the he's got these six companies of infantry and he sends four of them effectively out from the camp, keeps the other two back for the time being. And there's no expectation that any problems are, are likely to arise from this. Messengers are then sent off across the plain to Chelmsford. He receives several messages during the course of the day, all of which he ignores because he cannot believe that the Zulu army is attacking the camp. And it's, it's a question of sheer weight of numbers in a way. The British, there's a, what has since become clear from, from accounts that have now been discovered, is that not everybody in the camp is sent into the firing line. There, many of the men are actually packing up the camp because the expectation is they will follow Chelmsford in the direction of Yolandi the following day. So... The, the firing line is actually very dispersed. And although they put down a considerable firepower from what's called the Martini Henry, which is a very good breech-loading rifle, there's a single-shot breech-loader, much the way that Springfield, you know, used by, say, Custer, and mm -hmm. the 7th Cavalry is a, is a single-shot breech-loader as well. And for a long, long period of time, 
the firing line holds. Meanwhile, Durnford is off across the plain and he encounters the rest of the Zulu army heading straight for him. He has to withdraw to what's called a donga, which is a dry river course. And he, he his ammunition supply is relatively limited. Now, there's a, another big controversy about whether or not the ammunition supply on the firing line failed. It did not. But these colonial volunteers have much less ammunition. So progressively, out on the plain, Durnford and his colonial volunteers are forced back onto the camp. And at one point, when they are, that particular group are running low of ammunition and they start to retreat, then the Zulus rise up. And Durnford is on the right flank of the British defending line. Most of the British infantry is well to the left. And in effect, Durnford's subsequent last retreat, in a sense, enables the Zulus to infiltrate between his force and the British, so they're outflanked. But at the same time, because of this nature of the, of, of the, the horns, Durnford is confronting the left horn of the Zulu army, and the British infantry are confronting the main loins. But there's also the right, and that's gone right round the back of his Andwana and comes into the camp from the rear. Mm. So, in effect, the British get themselves surrounded. And you know, in, 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 there, there, is, there are reports that there is a, a bugle was sounded to bring everybody back into the camp area to a much more tighter defensive formation. But once the British start to try to do that, the Zulus are a lot faster on foot than the British. And you know, it then becomes just a mass of hand-to-hand -hand fighting throughout the camp area. And one of the old stories was, was the it was the Natal native contingent, the native auxiliaries that that their collapse brought about the collapse of the British fire line. That's not the case at all. It's a general pressure of numbers. So if you've got in effect twenty thousand Zulus and most seventeen hundred men, not all of whom are in the firing line, then you know, that pretty much explains the defeat. Can I can I ask before we get to the uh, the aftermath? Can I ask you know in addition to their their obvious valor in, in the fighting itself, I mean, in the face of this withering, you know, firepower that, that the Zulus are extraordinarily brave fighters. There's a kind of operational excellence in, in what you describe. I mean, extraordinary mobility and stealth and mm. sound decision-making, you know, it seems like it's a good plan, well-executed or yeah. improvised, well-improvised. Well you know, yeah. what, what can you talk, I, I'm just curious, you know, there are no, there are no staff colleges. There are no, no. training depots, right? There's, there's none of this stuff that would allow a Western army of the day or today to achieve these same ends. Yeah. How, how, how are the Zulus able to fight so well and not just fight in the sense yeah. of fighting, but fight in the uh, sense of operating? They, they do have some experienced commanders. Uh, a man called Chinchueo is the, the man who's generally in charge of the Zulu army. The Zulu Impia is Andrana. And one thing which I think is important is that most of, before, before a battle, the Zulus had to be ritually prepared for a battle. Now, again, there is a dispute as to how far, how far that had been undertaken because of the, 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 the suddenness with which they had been discovered by, by the British patrol. And it, it seems that probably only the reserve was doctored in that sense by the, the sort of the, med, the, med, the medicine men, the witch doctors. 
so you know, a very large to a very large degree, you're absolutely right. It's almost instinctive. I mean, they they were well trained, they were well drilled. Although they they had not fought a, a European army, they had never fought a European army. They had come across the Burrs. They're in isolated battles, but they had not fought the Burrs since 1838. And the only real significant battle. Which in which Zulu had been engaged was back in 1856 when Keshweo defeated one of his own brothers. But they're so very well drilled and trained in these particular tactics, which have been you know, long evolved within the Zulu polity. It goes back to Shaka, who was the sort of the great Zulu leader from about 1818 through to 1828, 1829. One could say it's almost instinctive. And uh, there are these stories of the Zulus sort of going to grab. I mean, when the British do have two six-pounder six artillery pieces. And the accounts suggest that they soon realised that when the, zoo, when the gunners stood back from the artillery, the gun was about to fire, and therefore they went flat. So, you know, there's a lot of instinctive military skills, which I think they, they undoubtedly show, but they do take horrendous casualties. Yeah. But, you know, are courageous enough to press the attack despite that. And what is the the ultimate consequence at Sandawana? Talk about what what happens towards the end of the fighting. Well, roughly around about eight hundred of the defenders are killed. It's the largest single day's loss by the British Army between eighteen fifty seven and nineteen fourteen. Eighteen fifty seven is the start of the Indian Mutiny. It has a tremendous impact in Britain because of the sheer scale of loss. There are, in addition, somewhere about 300 African auxiliaries are killed, three to 400. Only 55 Europeans escape from Isandwana. And of those, only five are regular officers. Mm-hmm. And it, it's Keshweo supposedly had told his sort of commanders that it's the red coats who, who have to be disposed of. And as it happens, the five regular officers who escape were wearing blue patrol jackets. Hmm. They weren't wearing you know, the traditional red of, of the infantry. They were all in staff positions. They were in, their, in their, their blue patrols. The Zulus probably lose in somewhere around three to 4,000. Know, it's, it's, it's a very, very wow. high death toll. The Zulu reserve had not been engaged at Zandwana. So that's somewhere between three and 4,000 men. And they sweep on. They, those who try to escape go down what's called Fugitive's Trail towards the Buffalo River, which is in flood. And therefore, it's very difficult for those the survivors to get across the river at what's now called Fugitive's Drift. The, they're pursued by the Zulus who are in action at Isandwana. But the reserve goes off and go, heads towards Natal and is able, by linking arms, to cross the river a little bit further away from Fugitive's Drift. And then... Keshweo had told his commanders that they should not invade Natal, that they should keep out of Natal because that would give them... Again, you know, there's very much this sense in which he wants to appear that the yeah. party, which in many respects, of course, he was. So against his wishes, this re- most of this reserve, three 4,000 men, a name called Dabalazi, who's one of his half-brothers, sweeps on to into Natal, presumably to lift cattle, and then they come across the isolated post of Rourke's Drift, which appears to be you no know, very thinly defended and therefore 
that's attacked. Some other groups of Zulus did raid into Natal. They all withdrew subsequently, as indeed did the those who attacked Mork's Drift. So it, it, it undermines the whole, of course, British plan. There can be no easy victory. Reinforcements had to be rushed out. Chelmsford, the, the column in the south, once he heard about his Andwana, immediately holed up at a place called Ashoi, waited for relief, and though it wasn't actually very closely besieged. Chelmsford relieves Ashoi in May, but he doesn't undertake a, a second invasion until June. And then ultimately that does succeed in defeating the Zulus at Yolanda in July. But the, you know, the, this defeat had been an enormous shock to the British. They're not used to, you know, yeah, sim, you know, this does not happen in terms of defeats against indigenous peoples. The only comparison really was that there was a battle in the Second Afghan War, Maiwand, in 1880, in which another British and Indian force was defeated, which again, the losses are nothing like the same scale as, as Zanduana. Let's let's talk about Rourke's Drift for a minute, which in, in terms of its scale, I suppose, is not quite on the same level as Sandwala, but but it certainly has a yeah. cultural mm. impact that's, you know, as significant. And I I can I will confess I in preparation for recording this, I watched the movie, the Michael Caine Zulu, <laughs> right. which I had never seen. You know, growing up in the States in the eighties and nineties, it's not shocking. You know, I, I did not come across <laughs> it. And it was I have really? to say, it was it was, it was it was fantastic. It was yeah. and I, it occurred to me as I was watching it that I've seen so many parts of it before because so many later films yeah. and shows are, I mean, Black Hawk Down is, is essentially a remake of Zulu. I mean, it's got mm. the same exact structure, the same exact themes. Mm. And I'm sure that Scott, the director of Black Hawk Down, had Zulu in mind when he was constructing Black Hawk Down. But so, well, maybe a good way to start here is, is it is it from a perspective of military history, is it worth watching or is it all fantasy or, you know, what, what's well, your view? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's somewhat inaccurate. It's <laughs> The, the funny thing is that the Zulu War was almost forgotten in Britain by the sort of middle of the eighteen eighties. There are other things which are in the press. There's the Second Afghan War. There's the Anglo Transvaal War. Essentially, the invasion of Egypt in eighteen eighty two. Gordon at Khartoum. There, there are many more things that fill people's minds very quickly. So it's almost forgotten for for almost fifty years. And then when the film comes out, which is nineteen sixty four, suddenly everybody's aware again of the Zulu War. And a lot of, not in, I suppose, including myself to some extent, but a lot of people who, who've written on the Zulu War, you know, began to get interested because they saw Zulu. Hmm. And so in, in a way that, that has had a very important cultural aftermath. In terms of the battle itself, it's, it was used at the time very much to offset the defeat. You know, so by playing up the, the, the defense of Wolf's Drift, thereby it, it sort of minimizes the disaster that had taken place in Isandwana. So Isandwana is 22nd of January, and the defensive walks drift is 22nd to 23rd. It goes over into the only hours of the 23rd. And on the face of it, you know, 139 men, many of whom are hospital patients, fight off three to 4,000 Zulu. And therefore, an awful lot of emphasis is put on that in Britain, in the press, in the gallantry, and so on. 11 Victoria Crosses are awarded for the defence of Rorts Drift, which again is pretty unprecedented. There was one occasion in the Crimean War when more, more were sort of given, but for that was for a battle that spread over about three days. So it's, it's, it's played up for a very particular purpose in Britain at the time. Uh, and in a way, the impact of that 
is 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 there that it revives in the 1960s in a curious kind of way and there's a, a lot of a, a lot is still made of of the film zulu in britain in one way or another it turns up in adverts you know little bits of it turn up in adverts or, or allusions to it turn up in adverts it's still something that arouses a degree of controversy in in many circles some people are uncomfortable with some of the the underlying themes of zulu but they're actually, it's actually, there is a kind of an anti there's a, it's yeah. in a curious kind of way. On the one hand, it looks back to some of the great imperial epics of Alexander Corder in the late 1930s, yeah. the drum, four feathers, and so on. Yeah. On the other hand, it very much looks forward to the 1960s. And uh, so Henry Hook, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is, is portrayed as this kind of, I suppose, 60s rebel. The drunk Paul, the Paul Newman would have played him if it were an American movie. <laughs> the, the real Henry Hook was actually a teetotaler who ended up as a guard at the British Museum in his, in his <laughs> career. Huh. Or, you know, there's this class antagonism between Chard and Bromhead, played by Michael Caine, and in the case of Bromhead, and um, <laughs> members of Sip, who plays Chard. He's, a, he, he's, I'll look it up. He's, um, he's yeah. not as famous as Michael Caine, but yeah. I mean, I'll look um, it up. I'll, you keep going, I'll look it up. Yeah. So, no, it, it, it keeps coming back in, in many ways. Oh, it's Baker, Stanley Baker. Stanley Baker. So um, curiously enough, actually, you, you have that allusion to, to the Star Wars stuff. The idea of Welshmen singing the sort of men of Harlech as the, as the hordes approach actually came from a, a, a Western called Apache Drums, hmm. where you've got these Welsh miners who are holed up and, and sing men of Harlech just before the Apaches attack. So well, that's that's taken from that. It's not taken from history. <laughs> there was it, but the, there is a substantial Welsh role or Welsh contingent, correct? Or is that mm. also is that uh, you're 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 well, indicating less less than less so it's a bit of a myth that so there's 139 uh, defenders. And the 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 bulk of the defenders are B Company of the second battalion of the 24th foot, commanded by Gonville Bromhead. John Charles Royal Engineer, who happens to be at Rourke's Drift to build ponts across the river. A lot of work's been done on this now. And the, 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 the 24th foot in 1881, two years later, there's a process called territorialization, whereby regiments are given county designations in Britain. That's in 1881. And the 24th foot is designated as the South Wales borderers in 1881. But in 1879, it's the second Warwickshire regiment. Hmm. Having said that, the depot of the regiment had been established at Brecon in Wales in 1873. Great. So you, you do get, you're beginning to get more Welsh recruitment into the 2nd Battalion, not the 1st Battalion. The 1st Battalion had been out in India for a long time. And in the end, it comes down to about 139. Some people reckon that as few as maybe 10 are actually genuinely Welsh. Usually it's reckoned to be about around about 30-ish. And that includes men who have been born in Monmouthshire, which is often regarded as a Welsh county, county but actually was part of England at the time. So it's something of a myth that they're all Welsh. But Stanley Baker, you know, who produces the film, is a very proud Welshman. Hmm. And you guess his his mate Richard Burton to do the sort of the opening and the closing narration. So it's very much a kind of celebration of Welshness. 
and then the reality was rather different. Uh, Actually, there were there were technically there were more Irishmen at Rourke's Drift than there were Welshmen. We journalists have an expression too good to <laughs> check. New historians are, are always going off and checking. So I, I want to get us off the movie and get to what actually happened. Yeah. But one one more, just one last. I apologize. Please yeah, indulge yeah. me. The wonderful drama between Michael Caine's aristocratic character and yeah. Stanley Baker's more more down to earth engineer officer. Yeah. Is is there any any reality to that? Well, they they were they were not as young as they are portrayed in the movie. They're both well into their thirties. They were both professional soldiers. There's no evidence that Chard was any less aristocratic than, than Bromhead. It's, it's very much played up for, for purposes of the film. And neither, most certainly neither, uh, there's that moment at the end of the film after, after the Zulus have disappeared and they're looking in the sort of the burning ruins of the, of the hospital and they're, they're ashamed of what they've done. Well, neither Bromhead or, or Chard would have subscribe to those kind of ideals in, in the 18, 18, 1870s, 1880s. So it's, it's, it's not really a reflection of reality because most of the British officer corps, be they engineers or infantrymen, were, of, were aristocratic background. Uh, engineers tended to be better educated than infantry officers. It's a more technical arm, and artillery and engineer officers are both trained at Royal Military Academy Woolwich. Whereas infantry cavalry officers go to Royal Military College Sandhurst, and you you do need a, a more technical education, a more technical background to become either an artillery or an engineer officer. But broadly similar, officer the officer corps of the Victorian Army is very much the same as mm. landed gentry aristocracy generally. There's there, there are, I mean, it, it's in a sense there are middle class officers in in a way, but the middle, the Victorian middle class subscribes so so greatly to the ideals of the aristocracy that for all practical purposes, there's no real difference between mm -hmm. them. So it's it's later in the day on the twenty second. Yeah. The, the the troops at Sandawan have been defeated. The British yeah. troops. There's been this sort of ritual desecration of, of the dead. Things have not gone yeah. well for the British. And how does how does news trickle in to, to Rourke's drift and, and how does the, the preparation of the defense actually go? Well, it was not apparent until sort of the middle of the afternoon. And you start to get fugitives from Isandwana who are coming past Rourke's drift. As I said earlier, the Zulu is that those who'd fought at the battle had pursued the British who tried to escape down to the Buffalo River. And some of the colonial volunteers, including this chap called Aitendorf, supposedly, rides past Rourke's Drift. One of the five imperial officers who'd escaped, uh, Alan Gardner, once he's on the right side of the buffalo, pens a, a note to Rourke's Drift. So round about sort of 2.30, 3 o'clock, it's becoming clear that something has gone wrong. Now, behind Rourke's Drift, you have a, a very large hill called the Oscarberg, or Shinyani is the proper name. And when, the, in, when these reports start to come in, they do send up scouts up to the top of the hill to look. And it then becomes apparent, so 3, 3.30, that there are clearly Zulus coming towards Rourke's Drift. So Charles and Bromhead take the advice of two you have what's called the Commissariat Corps, and these this is the, like the Transport Corps. And two of the commissaries, 
are former NCOs. So they're former regular soldiers who've joined the commissary, commissariat corps subsequently. And they were both more experienced soldiers than Charles or Bromhead. One was called Dunn, and they, they in a sense, advised Chard and Bromhead that you know, you're not going to outrun the Zulus, particularly if you try to put the, the, the sick in the hospital. There's about, I say, 139 defenders, about 20 or so of those are actually sick in the hospital. Hmm. You're not going to outrun the Zulus. So therefore, you, your best option is to put the post into a stage of defence. So Dalton's the other one, Dalton and Dunn. So they improvise, they bring in some wagons, uh, shown as it's shown very much in the movie, actually. Biscuit boxes, sacks of mealies, maize, and they improvise this defensive perimeter. And there, there's a particular, the reason why the Zulus aren't able to get into it is one, they come piecemeal. They don't all arrive at once. Secondly, they, they, they have been on the move since the early hours of the morning. They arrive and they've run most of the way. They arrive at, at Rourke's Drift exhausted. And around much of the perimeter, there is actually a rocky ledge. And when you've put the biscuit boxes and the mealy bags on top of that ledge, then actually it makes quite a high wall. And the, the Zulus have a, a short stabbing spear. And the British have what's called the lunger which is a bayonet that fits on the end of the Martini Henry, which is quite a long bayonet. And actually, the British have a greater, a greater reach with the bayonet stuck on the end of the rifle than the Zulus have with their assegais, with a short-stabbing spear. So given the extra height of, of the, the, the defences in many places, it's exceptionally difficult for the Zulus to get in. So they do make a significant, you know, a, a series of, of piecemeal attacks. They do, they do have firearms, but again, there's this myth that they 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 use Martini Henry breech loaders captured in Zandrana. They don't, as far as we can tell. They're, they are firing down from the Oscarberg into the perimeter, but they're firing old percussion muskets. So though there are casualties caused by Zulu firepower, it's you know, it's not the danger that is sometimes suggested that it is. So the, the Zulus you know, keep attacking in piecemeal and they keep getting thrown back. The, the most serious part is when they get into their Rourke's Drift is, is a, a hospital, a house that's been made into a hospital and it's a storeroom. And you've linked the, around the perimeter, you've linked the hospital and the storeroom with these improvised walls. And the, the most dangerous time is towards the sort of evening, 9, 10 p.m., when the Zulus are able to break into the hospital. And the British, as again, as shown in the movie, actually, the British dig their way through the, the walls, get the, the hospital, most of the hospital patients out, and then retreat across the, the, the yard. And they've, put, they've got another line of defences that they've already put along, you know, midway along the yard. And so the Zulus are you know, are simply unable you know, to get into the defences, and they, in the end, the, the last significant attack is about four a.m., and then they just disappear. And again, probably we're talking about five to six hundred Zulu dead, well, and the British have, I think, as I recall, seventeen dead. So you know, 
you're not fighting in the open. You're fighting behind a prepared defense, such as it is, but it's effective in us. The Zulu simply couldn't get over it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a level of preparation. I mean, those few hours to become, as it were, serious about the challenge that you face, yeah. as opposed to what had happened earlier in the day, where there does seem to be a bit of a lack of seriousness yeah. in the hours. Well, yeah. The well, so there is this argument that if, if instead of having your firing line extended, it is rather then they'd pull back and you know, stood shoulder to shoulder in the camp with the ammunition behind them and all the rest of it, then there's a very good chance that they would have been able to see off that, that attack by the Zulus it is Andorra. So you, you you touched on it a little bit earlier in our conversation, but but in the aftermath of the 22nd and 23rd, what what are the consequences of, of the fighting? It, it seems like the Zulus are unable to really exploit the victory to the to to political ends, but but walk, walk, walk us through what 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 does Chechweo think and do after the battle? Well, I think he is clearly shocked by the level of casualties, and said he had not wanted in any case. Uh, he had actually warned them not to attack a fortified post, to to try to avoid that. He'd war, warned his commanders not to go into Natal. After not only if they had significant losses. Therefore, they, we're talking about you know 3,600 dead, probably, in the two battles. After a battle like that, the Zulus have to purify themselves. You know, that's part of their, their, their culture, ritual culture. So they, they have, in effect, it would be impossible to reassemble the Zulu army for, for some considerable time, because they've all got to go through these purification ceremonies and all the rest of it, and absorb the losses and so on. So in a sense, the the, the immediate danger to Natal is ended, in effect, by Rourke's mm. Drift, although whether there is any serious likelihood that the Zulus would invade Natal is probably, a, you know, probably not very likely. So the British, in a sense, in a military sense, have time to recover. Keshweo does reassemble the army and said that the, the number number. Number one column, which is down in the south, had hold itself up to Shawi, and therefore is not a danger to the Zulus. Up in the north, num- number four column is coming down from the Utrecht district, which is the disputed territory between the Burrs and, and the Zulus. And in March, Keshweo sent his arm, had reassembled the army and sent the army against number four column. Again, there was a, a, a defeat at a place called Slaban. The British were raiding cattle, and the the cattle raiders get themselves caught on top of Slobar Mountain, have some significant losses and retreating. But they retreated to an entrenched camp at Kambula. And on the following day, the main Zulu army attacks Kambula. And again, this is now a properly entrenched, defended camp. uh, It's commanded by Evelyn Wood. And the Zulus get nowhere near coming because of the firepower, and they again have horrendous casualties. So after that, you know, there, there's no way in which the Zulus are going to be able to, in the longer term, win this war. Significant reinforcements come from England. As I said earlier, there's a second invasion that starts in June, and the, the, the Zulus are again, the last battle is at Yolandi, 4th of July. And again, the Zulu army attacks what's a massive square formation and they're just shot down in very large numbers. So I think the Zulu options after Zandwana are relatively limited. The British have the opportunity because of the lull in 
operations to rebuild, reinforce, and you know, advance again. And there was that determination because of the nature of the defeated in San Juan. And there was that determination this war would be won. Hence the reinforcements which, uh, and the resources that are then sent out to South Africa. Why, why don't the Zulu and, and Cachueo put more effort into avoiding these set piece assaults that are that are clearly I mean it's San Juan is the it's the it's if you like it's the exception that proves the yeah. rule you, you know it's it's a it's it's of course there's Zulu valor but there's also British incompetence maybe too strong but mm. poor decision yeah. making that leads to that outcome in general the outcomes that happen otherwise are probably the ones you might more expect and so it's it's striking mm. to me that they do kind of keep seeking these engagements where they are they are on the offense well it's, it's, it's it comes down to the Zulu way of war you know, they, they only have one way in which they, in a sense, know how to fight. Now, if you look at, say, the Kosa, who had, there had been a whole series of, of wars against the Kosa in the Eastern Cape, the last one in 1878, bit, particularly in earlier on in the 1850s, the Kosa resort to guerrilla warfare. Now, that's much more difficult for the British to combat. But that, that's not the Zulu way of war. It is all about, you know, getting, you know, watching the spears, you know, killing, getting to close quarters, killing your enemy, proving your honor and so on. So it's, 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 and, and they never really deviate from that. I mean, come 1881, when the British are now going to fight the Boers, you know, who are well-armed, mounted, that's going to be a very different matter again. But the Zulus only have one way, for, one way in which they fight. And they never adapt. Ian, Other I, Africans do. Basuto do, for example. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's almost. I, I don't. I'm speaking in broad stereotypes here, but it's. It's. It's almost like they. To 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 use the the Victor Davis Hansenism, they they have a bit of a Western way. I mean, they're they're seeking yeah. decision, right? Am I? Is that? Do you think that's wrong? Is there? Is the warrior culture that they actually have not not quite? I mean, I I made the Hannibal observation earlier. There is something sort of Western feeling about their, their approach, if you accept that sort of stereotype about a Western way of war? Well, that was a controversial book, as you as you know. So it was. <laughs> we can talk and, about controversial uh, things. He, he, does, he does actually use the, the Zulu War as an example. Mm-hmm. I, I seem to, I, I vaguely recall. It was college culture and something, I think, is, is the... Yeah, carnage and culture. what it was sure. called in this country. In this instance, yes, uh, there there is you know there there is a very distinct Zulu way of war, which is is not likely, uh, except under very special circumstances, to prevail against Western firepower. But I said other African tribes adapt. Yeah. There's what's called the 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 gun war in the 1880s against the Basutos. The Basutos are very well armed uh, with uh, modern weapons. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. I'm 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 grateful to you for for making the time, Ian Beckett, author of Rourke's Drift and Asandalwana. Much appreciated. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.